Hello, everybody. Welcome to this episode of What's Next live with an amazing guest. I'm super thrilled to have Annie Duke join us today. For those of you who don't know who she is, Annie was a world champion poker player and has won over $4 million over her career, but she retired about a decade ago, which I feel like might be was a good decision. We're going to talk about that. <laughs> but she is also an author. She's got a new book out called Quit by Annie Duke. And I'm just thrilled to have her because I've been chasing her to be on this show for about a year and I needed her book to come out. So welcome to the show, Annie. Well, thank you for having me. I'm excited. All right. Well, I always start my sessions with something, my interviews with something called Bullish and Bearish. We usually do it on the voice only, but I'm going to do it okay. this one oh. today. Are you ready? Okay. No, ready? I don't know. Let's see. All right. So bullish, you're for it. Bearish, you're against yep. it. Three quick questions. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right. The first one, robot tennis players, bullish or bearish? Oh, bearish. Okay. I broke my wrist playing tennis two weeks ago. <laughs> I want humans. All right. I didn't know about the wrist, but I did know you played tennis. All right. Okay. Next one. Teaching kids poker in school. Oh, bullish. Yes. I mean, it, teach prop it teaches probabilistic thinking, which I think our society needs a lot more of. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. And the next. Quitting is a superpower in life. Oh, completely bullish. <laughs> well, I told you they that were was easy a softball. Things. That was a softball. That was a softball. But you know, let's let's begin um, with you making the decision to walk away from a career, which you know, from a winnings perspective, right, had been really good to you. You're one of the very few women who can say they've won a World Series of Poker bracelet. Um, you know, there's lots of good things on that side. But I'm guessing one day when you made the decision, there was a whole series of things that led up to that for you to um, leave the world of poker. What, how, what was that process? Well, so I mean, look, I, I want to say that like, like most things that people quit, I feel like I did it too late. So once I quit, um, I sort of looked back and said, I should have done that a lot earlier. So there, there were a few things. I think there were some pretty early signals for me. I, about eight years into when I was playing poker, I got asked to give a talk um, to uh, in finance to some options traders about how poker might inform their thinking about risk. I had a background in cognitive science, so I had uh, decided not to become an academic. I quit academia to become a poker player after <laughs> doing five years worth of PhD work at UPenn. So I, I came and you know, talked to them actually about how cognitive science and poker could have this very interesting conversation with each other about decision-making under uncertainty, which was super fun. And I kind of remembered how much I liked teaching. And then over the course of the next decade, I found that I was spending much more time on the speaking kind of consulting side of the world and less time in poker, which was a pretty good signal that maybe I was happier doing a different thing than what I was doing. Um, but then also there was a, there were a lot of things about the game that changed. So when I first started playing, it wasn't on television. It wasn't on the internet. Uh, it was small, um, a lot of community, and then the game really exploded, which was really great for the poker economy, but not as great for that feeling of community. Um, and I think that that was something that I really need in my work is is to feel that sense of community. Um, and then the the economy and poker also imploded, um, which created you know when things are really booming. I mean, I think you can see this in crypto right now. Like you have 
all these people who had all this money kind of like on paper and then the economy on them kind of implodes. Um, and it's not a fun time to be in communities like, like that for, you know, cause obviously people are kind of sad and miserable. And, um, that means that you don't get to see the A plus version of people in those moments. Um, and I think it was just like time for me to leave. And, um, I had something to leave too, which made it a lot easier for me. Um, cause I had a whole other career happening that I could go and spend my, all my focus on. Well, you had said something really quickly as you were giving that, um, history is you had maybe waited too long. And I think that mm -hmm. that's really a part of a lot of your work on decision-making as well as quitting that sometimes people wait for just the right time or what is the right time? How do you frame that for people who are listening and maybe thinking about a big decision or have been stuck in not making one? Well, first of all, I just want to make something clear. Like that sentence that you just said, st stuck in not making a decision, is a sentence that I think we should all start rejecting. Okay. Because not deciding, whatever that means, is making it's a decision. Right. It's just right. a question of, are you staying with the status quo or are you shifting? And uh, I think that we don't uh, sort of cognitively, the evidence is that when we're sticking with the status quo, we don't think about it as a decision. And I think that's problematic because we have to realize that every day we stick to something that we're unhappy with is a day we're choosing to do that, whether we want to acknowledge it or not. And there's some attendant issues that come with that, which is that for things that we think about as decisions, we worry a lot about the losses that might be associated with that decision in a way that we don't for the status quo. So uh, like I talked to a woman for, for my book named Sarah Olster Martinez, who was trying to decide whether to stay in her job as a hospital administrator. And she did about six uh, shifts a week as an ER doc as well, or switch to a job she had been offered um, as, uh, evaluating cases for an insurance company. And she did this thing, which is, uh, you know, I said to her, well, why don't you want to switch? Because it was very clear she was miserable in the job that she was in. And she said, well, what if I take the new job and I don't like it? So that's that problem of we worry about like getting a bad outcome from something we think we're deciding to switch to in a way we don't think about it for the thing we're doing. Because I said to her, imagine it's a year from now and you stay in your job. What's the probability you're happy? And she said, zero percent. That was her actual answer. <laughs> and then when I said, well, what's the probability you'll be happy in the new thing? She said, I don't know, 50 percent. And I just said it's 50 percent greater than zero. So that gives us the first clue as to how to be better sort of thinking about should we switch to something or not is we want to get focused on two things. One is what's it going to cost me to continue, right? So that was that, are you going to be happy in a year? Because that's the cost, right? And she said, no. So I'm getting her focused on the cost to continue. And then I switched her over and said, what is the cost of not switching? Which is a much, she's costing herself a much greater chance at happiness. Um, and that actually got her to quit, go take the new job. Uh, she did it that week, actually, and uh, she's a lot happier. But this is generally a problem with with these decisions about make ha, making these sort of big life switches is that we're really slow to do them. And usually when we quit, we do it way too late. And I think we can all intuit that. Like, you know, you break up with someone, you're like, why didn't I do that sooner? You leave your job. <laughs> why didn't I do that sooner? I left poker. Why didn't you do that sooner? And that's sort of a common refrain. And so I think... He, he, I 
do you think the pros and cons lists are the way to then do that? Like having somebody say what you just said, right? Okay, well, what's the probability of you being happy? Zero. What's the probability of you being, I don't know, 50%? Well, 50 is better than zero. So, you know, if you yeah. don't have somebody like Annie, right, in your ear saying, let me ask you these questions, what is the best way to individually get yourself to that decision potentially? Yeah, so pros and cons lists are actually very bad tools. They're not good right? decision tools for the reason that they amplify bias. And you can see why that is. There's two problems. One is that if you're kind of biased toward wanting to do it, you'll just create a lot of pros. And if you're biased toward not wanting to do it, you'll create a lot of cons. Uh, the other thing is that we want it, the cons themselves get you focused on the downside in a way that we don't really want to. Um, and there's no probabilities associated with it, right? So you want to think about, well, this could be a bad outcome from this, but what's the chances of that happening? So I, dumping pros and cons lists is a good way to improve your decision making. Um, instead, for when it comes to decisions about making these kinds of switches um, or sticking with what you're doing, the big advice that I have is don't try to do it in the moment. Because in the moment, it's kind of like trying to make good decisions about eating healthy when there's an open box of chocolates in front of you. We're just not very good um, in those moments. So instead, what, what I try to tell people is when you're thinking about this, if you don't have a coach, which by the way, if you can go find a mentor, do that because they're going to be really helpful. But, um, uh, but what you should do is in that moment where you say, hmm, I'm thinking maybe I'm not happy. Should I make a switch? In that moment, give yourself a deadline. So let's say you're unhappy in your job. How long am I okay with the status quo? Ask that to yourself now. So let's say you say, I'm okay with the status quo for three more months. And then say in three months, what does it look like if I should switch, if I should quit, right? And you can write down those as what I call kill criteria, right? These are things that are going to tell you to kill a project, to walk away from whatever you're doing. You can call them exit criteria if you want something softer. I like kill criteria because I'm a little in your face. So, <laughs> uh, so you would write those things down. And then you can say, what does it look like to, meaning it's turned around? And you can write down those things and then say, what are the inputs that I would need in order to get to the it's turned around part? So that might be like frank conversations with your boss, uh, maybe getting clearer KPIs, really understanding what the things are that you need to achieve, maybe getting yourself a coach, whatever it is. And then when the three months comes, you can look back at that list and you can say, did I, you know, do I see these signs that tell me I should walk away or do I see the things that tell me that I've turned it around? Uh, and then it's much easier to make those decisions about whether to walk away when you've done the advanced work. So this idea of advanced work is incredibly important, not just when it comes to quitting decisions, but actually when it comes to any decision-making, if we want to be better at making decisions, it's really good to do advanced work. And so, okay. So don't do the pros and cons list because of the no. bias, right? Yes. So create this sort of, you know, structure and timeline and goal. And when you feel it in the moment, so I, I, I think I also heard you say, don't make a rash decision that no. in a moment, like do it, right? Do either quit or stick, right? Like the, when it comes to your minds, you set a deadline. This is very important because I'm sure that you've, you've talked to people before where they're unhappy in their work or someone's unhappy with an employee and you have a conversation. They say they're going to go talk to the employee, let's say. And then you catch them, you know, six months, you know, six weeks later, and they say, well, I, you know, they're kind of getting there, but I don't know, I'm going to have another talk with them, and so on and so forth. Same thing for someone who's thinking about quitting their job. 
you'll talk to people and it will, this will, it will cycle like every three months you keep sort of having the same conversation with them. Cause when we actually allow ourselves to butt up against the decision, uh, we're very good at rationalizing, rationalizing a way to stick with the status quo for the reason that we're afraid to make that choice. Because when we make that choice, we sort of really metabolize the failure as our fault. Whereas when we have bad outcomes from the status quo, we do not feel that same kind of regret. We don't feel that same kind of blame. So we just really get hewed to that. And that's separate and apart from issues of like sunk costs. Like, but then I'll have wasted my time. I did all this onboarding. I learned the culture. I did all my training, you know, so on and so forth. And we don't like to give that stuff up either. So that's why these deadlines are so important because otherwise you will keep rationalizing away and you'll end up wasting a lot of time sort of like delaying what you think of as the decision, which is really just the decision to switch. So always have a deadline. As soon as you think, mm, I'm thinking maybe I'm not happy, set a deadline. And then make very clear, make it very clear to that future version of you what good looks like and what bad looks like. So that you can then say, I'm going to commit when I see that it still looks bad, that I'm going to walk away. And I'm going to commit that when things have turned around, by my definition of things turning around, whatever that is that you value, that, um, that you know, I'll continue to stay and I'll understand the difference at that point. Yeah. And I think I'm using your words, but you end up, you know, betting against the future version of yourself. These are your words, right? Right. Yeah. Because yeah. You're, you're, you're stuck in this. I, I'm not actually... I'm not actually betting on myself. I don't believe I can make it through this. I don't believe it's the right decision or, or I don't believe three months is enough time or whatever you've sort of self, you know, your self-talk, right, can hold you back from, even if you set the goal, doesn't mean in 90 days you don't move the goalpost. <laughs> which, which is what we do. And that's how you end up rinsing, repeating the same conversation with somebody where you as an outsider can very clearly see that they should walk away. But so by thinking about it in advance, you become a little bit like an outside advisor to yourself because uh, we're just more rational when we're thinking in advance. So just in the way that I can see three months is a good deadline, I kind of know what good looks like for you, you know, so and so forth. When I'm thinking for myself, I sort of I'm seeing myself from the outside a little bit better because the future version of me is in a lot of ways not me. It's a person that I'm advising that's going to exist sometime in the future. Uh, and so I'm less likely to do all the rationalization and the punting and that kind of thing. And, it, and the science is very strong on this, that this kind of advanced planning is very helpful, whether we're talking about a quitting decision or whether we're talking about how do you stick to, you know, a healthy eating plan? How do you make sure that you continue to go to the gym? How do you uh, think about the way that you handle arguments with your spouse? Like all of these things where we think in advance about what we want to actually do and make a commitment to it in advance just Im improves the quality of the decisions that you'll make uh, when you actually face those down. Well, you know, I talk to a lot of executives, uh, you know, around the globe and, and I see two sides to, the, to a similar coin and I'd love your take on this. Sometimes I'll sit down with executives and we're talking about maybe a medium term strategy, right? Okay. We're trying to do this two years from now. We're starting to make investments today, you know, and then sort of, you know, keep on with the meetings with them similar, right? If it's a coaching situation or a consulting situation, you're on a sort of a regular cadence with them. And then all of a sudden one day they pull the plug, like it's not giving me the return I thought I was going to get. Like, well, wait a second. Like, didn't we say it was going to be a two year journey and it's month three or five or six and they pull the plug. 
And then a year goes by and then they go, I think we need to revisit that, right? And so they don't give it enough time to sort of set, you know, actually start to show momentum that they don't have the patience. That's one side to the coin. The other side to the coin is, you know, it's like, well, we're going to try this, you know, and we want to get somewhere in two years. And then you're six months or 12 months in and something has drastically changed where it's not a good strategy anymore. Now it's like yep. now to your point, they've made all these investments and they won't pull the plug. So how do you, and I'm guessing you've never heard those two scenarios before, right? You hear them all the time, <laughs> but maybe step through the two scenarios sure. at both sides and, and, and how would you um, advise someone listening who's, you know, in either yeah. of those camps? So look, whether to stick or whether to quit is a calibration issue, right? They're not actually different decisions where sticking to things is somehow a virtue and quitting is a vice. It's no, it depends on the context that you're sitting in. And people make both mistakes, which is what you're describing. So here's one of the problems with goal setting is that when we set a goal, we'll often head to the goal no matter what, right? So we'll become very, um, fixated. Uh, well, we become fixed because it's a fixed object in a changing world. We become essentially unattentive to the changes that might be occurring in the world. So much so that like there was this woman, Siobhan O'Keefe, who ran the 2019 marathon broke her leg on mile eight and finished the race against medical advice. Now, obviously that's absurd because <laughs> you're, you're possibly sacrificing literally ever being able to run a race again. But why did she do that? Because there was a finish line. There was a goal and eight miles past the starting line doesn't count for anything. In fact, if you make it to within 300 feet of the summit of Everest and turn around, you have failed. Ugh. Never mind that you got 29,000 feet there. So we all get this version of summit fever. By the way, Siobhan O'Keefe isn't weird. There were four people in the 2019 London Marathon alone who did that. And it happens in every single marathon that people will finish with broken bones. Not like half a mile, like many, many miles. Okay, so that's sort of problem, the problem with um, with goals. But sometimes you can also be too reactive. Okay, so there's there's two ways to solve for this problem. And they both actually solve for the problem uh, both problems at the same time. So kill criteria is one of them. So when you start a project, what you want to say is what could we see? What are the things that we could see that would tell us that this is not worth pursuing in the future, right? So what could we see, for example, in six months that would tell us that this is not worth pursuing? And you can put that conversation on a regular cadence. So this is something that I do with uh, all of my clients when we're entering into a strategic initiative, even just like a, a, a you know, you've gotten a client, a, a possible lead through a, for a customer through an RFP or RFI. Um, what are the things that you could see that would tell you that you're not going to win this deal as an example, right? So it's like, uh, they only want to talk about price. They don't even want a product demo ever, right? So that would be a good one where we know, okay, that's something we're going to see that we should walk away from. Now that's going to solve setting those types of kill criteria. And obviously for a two year project, you're going to probably want to go through that process once a quarter. So you've got it on a regular cadence where you're thinking about what could we see in the next quarter that would tell us that we ought to walk away. Solves both problems. It stops you from overreacting to, to things because if they're not on your list, you wouldn't walk away. And it stops you from underreacting to things because if they are on your list, you would walk away. So it creates an unless to that fixed goal, right? Like I want to hit the finish line unless I break my leg. So that's the first thing is these kill criteria are very helpful for that. But the other thing is something called monkeys and pedestals. So monkeys and pedestals is a mental model 
from Astro Teller over at Axe, which is Google's in-house innovation hub. And I think this is very helpful when we get into project planning, strategic initiatives, product development to help us to start to get to should we quit or should we stick to it. When we're entering into a two-year strategic initiative where there's going to be a lot of uncertainty, that facts on the ground are going to change. Okay, so monkeys and pedestals goes like this. If you're trying to train a monkey to juggle flaming torches while standing on a pedestal in order to make a bunch of money with your act, there are two pieces to that puzzle. Can you train the monkey to juggle the flaming torches? And then there's also building the pedestal. Do not build the pedestal first because for several reasons. What is the thing that you don't know that you need to prove to know that this is worth pursuing? Well, it's can I train the monkey to juggle the flaming torches? That's the thing you don't know. So that's what you always have to attack first. Because A, there's no point in building a pedestal if you can't get the monkey to juggle. Problem number one. B, is that uh, you already know you can build the pedestal. So if you build the pedestal, it represents false progress. And we don't want false progress because false progress um, makes it harder for us to quit later, which is the third problem. Uh, when you've built lots of pedestals, you've created ownership and sunk costs and your identity gets tied into it. And there's career risk now associated with abandoning the pedestal. Um, and so that's the really the third problem with building the pedestal is you already know you can do it. So you really want to attack the monkey first. So it should always be monkeys first. Um, and so essentially, well, I'm sure, Tiffany, have you ever been in one of these meetings and they say when they're doing the kickoff, um, what's the low hanging fruit? Oh, yeah. All the right. time. Yeah. And then they're like, let's do that so that we can start making progress right away. And it's like, no, don't do that because low hanging fruit by definition is pedestal building. You already know, by, that's why it's low-hanging fruit. You already know you can do it. So don't start to tackle the low-hanging fruit except under two circumstances. One is you've already figured out if you can solve for the monkey or you have to build that pedestal in order to, in order to get the information about the monkey. So here's like a super simple example of monkeys and pedestals. The California bullet train, I know you live in LA, so you're familiar with this project, connecting LA to San Francisco. Okay, they in 2010 floated a bond for $9 billion on a $33 billion budget to build high-speed rail connecting the two uh, economic engines of the state. Where did they start building track? Between Madera and Fresno on flat land in the Central Valley. That is a pedestal. We already know we can do that. They then built track. Uh, they then decided to build a section of track between um, Fresno, I'm sorry, between Merced and Bakersfield, also on flat land, a pedestal. The next piece of track they're building is between San Francisco and Silicon Valley, also flat land, a pedestal. Do you know what they still haven't addressed? That there are two ginormous mountain ranges, the Diablo Range and the Techapi Mountains to the north of LA, the Diablo Range is to the south of San Francisco. And they still have no idea if they can blast through those mountains safely because they're in a seismically active area. It's on the San Andreas Fault. Okay, so they have now spent $9 billion of taxpayer money building pedestals without actually knowing if they can train those, those monkeys to juggle. They don't know if they can get through the mountains. The budget has exploded from $33 billion to I think it's now up to $115, $120 billion at this point, and they're not stopping. So this is why monkeys and pedestals are so important, because if you approach that project 
with this idea, the first thing you would do is an engineering study on the two mountains. And then you know what would happen? You'd get your answer really, really fast. And you would know, should we jump ship or should we stick to it? Yeah. Well, before you even rate, did the bond. Like if it's right. before you did the bond, exactly. You, the bond. you do yeah. the engineering study and then you yeah. figure it out, but now they're stuck in it. And like the CEO who says, well, we've got a goal. Let's just keep going. Well, they're and it's not, not sexy not walking away. It, it's, you know, some of it is, is, is ego. Some of it is, they're not asking the right questions. Some of it is if we set the goal, everyone, right. It's sort of like that kind of let's, yeah, and, and we just knew where it's going to manifest great. it. <laughs> yeah. Goals are great. So is grit right? If you're going to be successful at something, you will have had to stick to it. Uh, goals motivate people. It's just that we need to realize that uh, sometimes goals should change because the world changes, right? right? Sometimes grid isn't right because you get bad news and you find out, you know, there's two mountain ranges, oops, and you should probably walk away or you have a strategic initiative and then the pandemic hits and you say, oh, we better change our minds about that. And that's all okay. So I think everybody should have lots and lots of very clearly defined goals that also have lots of unlesses associated with them. Well, I'm going to pivot just a little bit um, because I think this leads us to uh, a story that you and I were talking about before we went live um, about you know a company that kind of had this amazing opportunity to do very different things, um, but you know maybe didn't make the right decisions. Uh, I would love for you to share that story because I think at least in the US, right, it is a brand most people know. For so sure. Share it. So this is a story about identity. So one of the hardest things to quit is who you are, right? It's part of the reason why I quit poker too late because I was a poker player. I was on TV. That's how people knew me. Uh, and this can really get in the way of good decisions about what to stick to and what not to stick to. So this is a story about Sears. Um, which is a big retail company in the U.S. They sold everything, literally. literally. Um, you could get a wrench or a bra, like in the exact or same a house. Place. Or, or a house. house, right? <laughs> um, so they started in the late 1800s with the a Book of Bargains, which was a 512-page catalog. And the idea was that the mail service had really just started to ramp up. There were all these people who lived in rural America that were not particularly mobile because there were no cars yet. Um, and this allowed them to get things like bicycles, right? Or wrenches or things that it was hard for them to find elsewhere. It was a humongous success. Uh, its IPO was huge in the early 1900s. Uh, in the 1920s, Roebuck or Sears rather, uh, Mr. Sears was worth um, $26 million. I mean, so this was a very big company. In fact, uh, by the 1950s, uh, Sears represented 1% of US GNP. Think about that. I mean, that's huge. So uh, somewhere around the early 30s, they um, still had their catalog, but they went to retail locations because people started driving cars. Uh, and so they were a little bit more mobile. And so they created locations that people could drive to. Obviously, that was a booming success because by the 1950s, they were number one retailer in the country, um, built the Sears Tower. And then uh, and then starting sort of in the early 80s, you start to see some cracks happening because uh, Kmart and Walmart start to come into the space. Uh, so they're sort of pushing them from the bottom. And then you also have like Nordstrom's, Neiman Marcus, Saks Fifth Avenue, pushing them from the top. 
And Sears starts to find not kind of find its footing anymore in the retail space. By the 90s, they're no longer the number one retailer. Uh, Kmart and Walmart have taken that spot. Target is now on its way in as well. And then we kind of know the rest of the story as they went into a very sad story of bankruptcy. So that's the story that most people know about Sears, but there's a whole other story about Sears and it's about Sears, the financial services company. Um, so uh, they started off giving credit to their customers right away. So they always had a banking division, but then in the 1930s, remember I said, they said, oh, people are driving cars. We need retail locations. Along with that, they said they need insurance for these cars. So they founded a company that you may have heard of before called Allstate Insurance. And they literally had desks in, so you could buy a rent, a bra, and car insurance. That's what you could buy now in the store. Um, so they had desks in, in the stores. And then they obviously eventually uh, branched out and became the lar largest insurer of personal liability. Um, so they, they owned Allstate. And then in the 70s, they founded Discover Card in order to give credit, you know, make a credit card for their customers. They also acquired Dean Witter, which was a very huge stock brokerage. And someone made um, a joke about Sears at that time. It was stocks and socks, which was great. But Dean Witter was really huge. And then they also had Coldwell Banker. Okay. So if you look at the market cap of uh, all state insurance alone, the last time I looked, it was like $40 billion alone. But that's not including Dean Witter, Discover, and Coldwell Banker. So we're talking about $100 billion in market cap. So the question is, how on earth did Sears go broke? Now that becomes very confusing. And it has to do with identity. So what happened was they have these thriving financial services companies um, and they have a faltering in the early 90s. They have a faltering retail business that's starting to really lose money. The shareholders basically demand action. The board has a confab. And they come out of it with this brilliant decision. We need to get back to our retailing roots. So they now sell Allstate. Morgan Stanley acquires, I think it was Morgan Stanley or JP Morgan. I can't remember which one right now. Acquires um, Dean, I think it was Morgan Stanley, acquires uh, Dean Witter and Discover Card. That represented 40% of Morgan Stanley's net, net, you know, worth at the time, of their market cap at the time. So I don't even know what that's worth. And they sell off Cold War Banker. Okay. So they literally sell off all of the profitable assets to keep the unprofitable ones. Even Whirlpool, right? I think it was also Whirlpool. Yeah. They, yeah. Sell off everything. So now they go broke. And that it's that back to the retailing roots. So the question is like, why would they make such bad decisions about it? Because the hardest thing to quit is who you are. And nobody, to this date, nobody knew that they owned Allstate. Nobody knew they owned Dean Witter or Discover Card. Sears was a retail company. And they, when it came push to shove, they wanted to keep their identity. And they quit the stuff that, that they, you know, that wasn't associated with them in the same way. And I think not just from a business perspective, like what are you holding on to because, because it's part of your business identity, but also on a personal level, what are you holding on to because it's part of your identity, right? Those, that's what we really have to ask ourselves. Uh, and I think that, for example, in the political space right now, we can see this problem where people are really identified with um, certain political parties that have beliefs associated with them. And no matter how many facts you throw at anybody, they don't change their mind because these are very hard things to let go. And if Sears, which is a bunch of very successful people, could make that mistake, we need to think about how we're making that mistake for ourselves. Yeah. And I, 
I mean, there's, there's so much underneath that. Right. And, and, and I, I, I want to just kind of end our time together and saying, you know, the, the last two years, well, sort of when we were in lockdown, I guess. So during that time, you know, who I was, was a keynote speaker. I was on the road all the time. And then all of a sudden my identity, right. I was homebound. I had to build a studio in my house. Like I had to kind of reinvent myself and make different decisions about what I was going to do. And, and do you think that this has led, what do you think that that led to people saying this? I I don't like the great resignation. I kind of like the great reflection. Like I took a pause and said, is this what I want to be doing? I I don't like resignation. And then now here we are talking about quote unquote, quiet quitting, which that's, just sounds like a whole lot of lack of decision. Quiet quitting is a lot of hooey. Like (laughs) you're not quitting. You're, you're making everybody else do your job. I, I, so, but, but when it comes to the great resignation, look, here's the thing. When we start things, we create a mental account and that mental account starts to accumulate debris, right? Whether it's uh, uh, the time and energy or money or attention that we've put into something. So those would be sunk costs, whether it's the things that we build along the way that would have to do with ownership, whether it's identity, right? Um, We don't like to walk away from those accounts. It's very hard for us. But here's the interesting thing is when we're forced to quit, it clears the account right? At the, the books are wiped fresh. And in the same way that we would then start to think about what might we want to start as if like we're coming out of college, deciding what job we want to take, right? Um, we can see things with fresher eyes and start to evaluate, does this fit with my values? Does this really make me happy? You know, and you could see that with like Sarah Olsen Martinez, right? Like here she is in this really miserable job, but the account hasn't been wiped clean. So she's still sort of held on by all those that debris that's kind of keeping her in the job and, and, and not allowing her to switch. But what if she was fired? Right. So I'm not saying, I'm not recommending you go get yourself fired. I'm just saying there's something (laughs) that can come out of that, which is that the mental account gets wiped clean. So here's the really interesting thing about the great resignation. It wasn't everybody who quit. It was very specifically service workers. Now, what is interesting about service workers? They're the ones who all lost their jobs when the pandemic lockdown happened, right? Because restaurants shut down, hotels were laying people off. You know, all the service workers got furloughed or laid off or, you know, so on and so forth. So they all have these mental accounts wiped clean. So now what happens is when the great resignation occurs, so this is now after the reopening has occurred, they were like, "Mm, you know what? I had some time to think, to reflect, (laughs) right? I don't really like this. I'm going to go get another job. So I think we sort of think about it as a bunch of people just quit, period. But they didn't. They quit to go do something else that was going to make them happier. And this brings up also another really good, important point about quitting is not just sort of this mental account, like wiping that account clean, which can have some very good effect, but also that uh, quitting has to collide with opportunity. So all of these people, it was when there were lots of jobs available that allowed them to go and make the switch, right? So for example, with what's going on right now, right? It's probably not a great time to quit your job without having another opportunity lined up. Whereas a year ago, it would have been fine to quit your job because you would know there was lots of uh, opportunity available to you. So we always need to think about that collision of opportunity with exit. Well, that that sort of, leads us to the end of this amazing conversation. I could keep going, but I'll I'll tell you a couple of statements that people made in the comments. One was uh, uh, from Eric. He said, grit for grit's sake has always bothered me. It can stand in the way of making an informed decision. I'm sure quitting all the time isn't the answer too. 
Um, so that's correct. We want to be really well calibrated. So here's what I would say. Uh, grit gets you to stick to things that are worthwhile, even if they're hard, but it also gets you to stick to things that aren't worthwhile. So the actual road to success is to sample a lot of stuff, quit the things that aren't working, and then really stick to the stuff that is. That is the road to success. So you have to have both character traits. One is not good. One's not bad. They're both good. And what matters is not so much like winners never quit, winners never win. It's, is it worthwhile? And if it's worthwhile, you should stick to it. If it's not worthwhile, you should try to quit really fast. So it's like the idea in sales that you want to qualify. You want to, one of two things, qualify the lead out really early or close it, right? And you want to do that with the things that you're doing in your life as well. Well, what a great answer and what a great way to round this off. Annie Duke, thank you so much. It was everything I expected it to be. Um, so for those of you listening, if you haven't picked up a copy of Annie's new book, Quit, go do that. Um, and the, really the rest of her books, she's got, I think, a half a dozen books on how to play poker well, which even if I read them, I probably wouldn't get any better. But yeah. maybe I would. I don't maybe. know. <laughs> I don't know. I, I give as much as I win. Let's say that. And then, um, you know, please keep in touch. Uh, how can people keep in touch with you, Annie? Uh, the best place to find me is actually AnnieDuke.com, which is my website. There's a contact form there. There's archived newsletters up there. You can subscribe to the newsletter there. You can see video. You, there's, that's where all the links to podcasts are that I've been on, uh, where the links to all my books are. You can go find that. Um, I'm also on Twitter for as long as Twitter's around. Who knows? <laughs> we, we can have a whole other discussion about that. Um, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, and so you can, you know, find me in the usual, yeah, the usual places that you would find people. Well, thank you, Annie. I was blessed to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for all your wise words. And thank you to everybody for joining us here today on What's Next Live. Have a great rest of your day.